Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat. Now before we begin today I do have a very exciting announcement. For all those that have not heard I'm very proud and delighted to say that I've joined Atomico, one of Europe's leading early stage venture funds investing from series A and beyond. Now the first thing to say is have no fear, Sasta will continue completely unaffected both in terms of frequency and content. The only change is I might be slightly more knowledgeable and thoughtful but do not worry I will still continue to be drinking mojitos and if you'd like to drink mojitos with me and the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, all you have to do is head over to Sasta, and when buying your Sasta annual tickets, enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, and you'll get both 20% off your ticket price and a fantastic free drink session with both me and Jason. Again, that's DRINKSWITHHARRY when you purchase your tickets for the show. But for the show today, and I'm so delighted to welcome Peter Reinhardt to the hot seat today. Now, Peter is the founder and CEO at Segment, the startup that allows you to collect all of your customer data and send it anywhere. And they count some of the biggest and best companies in the world as their customers, including the likes of Reuters, Hotel Tonight, New Relic, and Atlassian. They do not only have some of the world's leading customers, though. They also have some of the world's best investors with the likes of Excel, Thrive, and Kleiner Perkins participating in their latest 27 million Series B. I'd also like to say a huge thanks to Grant Miller at Replicated for the intro to Peter today. However, enough from me, so without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Reinhardt at Segment. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Well, Peter, fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Grant Miller at Replicated for the intro, but thank you so much, Peter, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today with a two to three minute founding story of Segment and, and how the business really got off the ground in the early days. Yeah, great question. It's uh, It's been quite the journey. We, we started the company in 2011. So it was uh, myself and two of my roommates from MIT and a friend of ours from Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, we decided that we wanted to build a app, a lecture tool, basically, for students to push a button to say, I'm confused. And the professor would see this graph over time of how confused their students were. And, you know, we thought it would be pretty exciting. And we showed it to a bunch of professors. They thought it was cool. We got into Y Combinator with this idea in the summer of 2011. And, you know, coming out of Demo Day, we raised some money. Uh, investors were excited about it as well. And then in the fall semester, back in Boston, we put it into about 20 different classrooms. And it was a total disaster. Basically, all the students uh, just opened up their laptops and went straight to Facebook in the middle of class. Uh, so it was pretty horrifying. And I, I do remember those days, I have to be honest, yeah. Yeah, and it's something we should have been able to predict it as students, you know? <laughs> like, of, of course, no one wants to pay attention. So we, we, we shut down that idea and we said, you know, I wish that we had been able to look look at the data about what was happening in the classroom and look at like how a computer science classroom was using it differently than an anthropology class. And none of the analytics tools that we were using at the time could help us do that. And so we said, okay, we're going to build a better analytics tool, uh, which turned out to be a, a bad idea for other reasons. Mostly that it's a really, really crowded market uh, with a lot of, lot of players trying to build better analytics tools. So we spent a little over a year trying to do that. Basically got to December 2012 uh, with no customers, no real product market fit, um, certainly no revenue. You know, at that point we were looking at our cash balance and we said, okay, well, we've got about six months of runway left here. Uh, so we started to get one more shot at some idea. Uh, so let's let's like think of new things. So pause there. If you rewind all the way back to that first week of Y Combinator, uh, in that first week, we had been uh, looking for an analytics tool to put on our on our classroom lecture tool. And we 
Googled it, and we found Kissmetrics, Mixpanel, and Google Analytics. And we said, you know, we're looking at the APIs for how these things need to be implemented to collect data. I'm like, okay, all these things are collecting pretty much the same data, but they're giving us different graphs and charts out the other end. So, like, which of these tools are we supposed to use? Um, we couldn't figure it out, so we just built this little abstraction that could send data to all three. And then over the next year, as an analytics tool, we had open-sourced it, and people had started using it. We'd added ourselves as a way to get data out in parallel to sending data to Mixpanel. We got to December 2012, and my co-founder Ian was like, you know, I think there's actually a really big business behind Analytics.js, this little open source library that did this data routing. And I was like, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. It's like, it's 580 lines of code. It's already open source. How on earth are you going to turn that into a big business? That makes no sense. But I couldn't convince my co-founders that it was... uh, that it was a bad idea. So the next morning I came in and said, all right, guys, let's build a landing page and we'll put it up on Hacker News and we'll just see what happens. And I was thinking nothing myself, to come of it. Exactly. I was, I was kind of hoping nothing would come of it because <laughs> uh, I didn't understand why it was a good idea. When we put it on Hacker News, it went straight to the top and got like a couple thousand stars on GitHub, a couple thousand email signups. People were reaching out to us on LinkedIn, like, what does a brother have to do to get access to your beta? It was pretty wild. It was like unlike anything we'd ever seen before and it all blew up over the course of like 36 hours. So that's clear product market fit in, in today's environment. But I've, I've heard you okay. talk about kind of um, reality distortion fields before in the kind of jobsy and tech sense. So so if you correlate that then to product market fit, how do you see uh, reality distortion fields and product market fit kind of integrating together? I think product market fit is the one place where reality distortion field is really damaging. Reality distortion field is, is basically sort of a two-edged weapon. On the one hand, it's really, really powerful for convincing others to join, for getting support from investors or your family or your friends or customers. Um, and, you, and you sort of need that early on because you're, you're sort of selling something that doesn't exist, might turn out to be a bad idea, but you have to get some people on board with it just to sort of test it out. So from that sense, it's really powerful. But the other side of it is if you're not careful, you can sort of convince yourself in a way that's sort of self-delusional, and that's really dangerous. Uh, and that's the most dangerous thing when you are when you don't actually have product market fit yet, because product market fit is all about testing your own assumptions. That's where we fell down, and I think a lot of people fall down. We actually- Their own reality distortion field sort of convincing themselves. We actually had Justin Can from uh, YC on the show recently, and he said that product market fit is when you get the first 10 customers who aren't within your internal network. Would you agree with that statement as a way to assess whether you have or haven't got product market fit? It sounds like a little bit of a simplification. I'd probably put it slightly differently or more sort of like, I think there's a description of it that feels a little more emotional when you're actually talking with those 10 customers, but uh, that seems like a good test in the sense that you've like distanced yourself from people who are clearly just buying it for the problem as opposed to any sort of social uh, social buy-in or social capital that you've expended to get people to use it. And you spoke about the different ventures that led up to Segment there. And kind of bringing back to that, did, would you say that you A, suffered from your own reality distortion field with regards to those? I would, yeah. I think, uh, I think we managed to convince ourselves that pretty meager levels of customer excitement were product market fit, which I think is an easy thing to do. I think customers have more dynamic range in their response to a product than most people realize. And so we would get these sort of responses that were like, oh, that seems really valuable or that seems really helpful, which is maybe like a, you know, seven or eight out of 10 on like a customer dynamic range from don't like it to like it. But in fact, when customer, when you really hit a pain point, the sort of customer dynamic range goes up to 11 and the response is just totally different. They're like, holy shit.
shit. Like, how can I get access to it today? Like, I need to call this other person on my team who like has been talking about this forever. How about I intro you? And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it doesn't even exist yet. Like, slow down. And so I think the customer's dynamic range is a lot broader than we realized. And so we never actually hit that 11. And so we were just always convincing ourselves that the 7 or 8 out of 10 was was product market fit. So kind of having gone through this uh, unsuccessful, I, I hope you don't mind me saying, customer validation, oh, yeah. how would you then look to structure customer validation today, having been through those pitfalls? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, you know, we're always testing new product ideas, so we're actually doing this fairly continuously. I actually had a recent conversation uh, with a large e-commerce company a few weeks ago, and we were presenting sort of like five different ideas. And for the first four, the response was sort of what I was saying before. They're like, oh, yeah, I really understand the value here. This seems like this seems like a really great idea. And if we had just looked at those four concepts, at those four product concepts that got that response, it would have been impossible. Like we could have argued all day about whether or not they really needed it, like why, etc. even with a bunch of follow-up questions. And then I presented the fifth idea and the customer was like, holy shit, we've been trying to solve that forever. And then he like turns to the other guy in the room and he's like, dude, can you set like six follow-up meetings or whatever with like all these other people in the company? And it's like this transition from like you're sort of pushing it and people are like, oh, that's nice to like all of a sudden you put it out there and they just like rip it off the table. And you're like, wait, but that wasn't that wasn't ready. <laughs> like, hey, hold on, hold your horses. And so I think the, the way that we structure it is like searching for that sort of the 11 out of 10 on the customer pain response. In terms of speaking to those customers, how do you yeah. look to kind of what I often get technical talent kind of saying to me, you know, I've spoken to one or two people who are potential customers. Uh, and so I, I know the customer need now. Do you think you need a large assortment of potential customers and to clearly segment the different customer profiles? Do you think that's necessary? I think the hardest thing early on is that you you have two moving pieces. You, your audience is a moving piece and the product for that audience is a moving piece. So before you have product market fit, you can either move the product or you can move the audience. Uh, and so you don't really want to, you only want to talk to customers within whatever audience you're targeting, but that could, you could shift that if you're not finding product market fit in that audience, right? So it's actually, it's like twice as hard basically because you have two moving pieces early on. Later on, when you do have product market fit in an established customer base, it gets easier because the audience is, is defined. And so then you're just searching for product. Uh, you're just moving around one variable. It's super tricky early on. It's interesting that to segregate product uh, to kind of audience there because I'm intrigued as to I often get two different sectors speaking to me technical and non-technical founding teams how do you think they differ in their approach to assessing product market fit and and not product market fit so to speak actually more customer validation how do those different camps approach it differently I think good non-technical founders have a very good understanding of the problem and don't really know how to build a solution for it and then very good technical founders founders obviously know how to build it, but they generally are pretty off the mark for what the actual problem is, unless they're building a solution that's something for themselves. So if they're building like a hosting platform or some sort of dev tool or something, you need both. Actually, you need to have, you like, you really need to understand which problem you're solving and you really know how to, how to, how to sort of build a solution. In terms of kind of then assessing the next step, we, we've figured out the, we've done the idea generation, we've done the customer validation and we're moving to the MVP now. So how do you assess the MVP? MVP for you? Is this kind of the barely functional nuts and bolts, or is this a pretty solid version of a very functional product? 
Uh, it varies a lot. It depends. So the whole concept of an MVP, I think, gets forgotten, which is the goal of an MVP is to reduce the risk around building the future product. It's meant to be a test. And so the first thing you have to do is identify, like, what's the biggest risk that we're trying to mitigate? Is it that people don't have this problem? Is it that it might not work technically? Is it any number of other things? And I think once you identify what that major risk is, then the MVP becomes a lot easier to, to build. Um, so like for us early on with Analytics.js, it was we don't think anyone cares. And so the easiest MVP to launch, the easiest test to launch was just to open source the library and publish basically a landing page for it, right? That was the easiest way to put it in front of a whole bunch of people and see if they cared. Uh, and then we got a response that was like, wow, people do care. Uh, so then it was easy, right? We had eliminated the largest source of risk there. Uh, I mean, in, in other situations, it might be that like, actually, we've heard from like 20 people that this is a problem that we have, but we're not sure that we've really like solved it the right way. And so that looks very different, right? That's like, you actually probably have to go build a product that really solves the problem. Yeah, it depends on the type of risk, but I, I think people forget that it's it's not about some magical formula for like how mature the product should be. It just has to be something that tests whatever you're feeling the most risk about. I'm super intrigued though, because you said that about open source. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of open source uh, in today's kind of uh, SaaS and enterprise environment as we move forward. Yeah, I think we got a little bit lucky here. The problem that we solve is basically tension between the marketing team and the engineering team. Marketing team is always wanting to instrument new analytics and, and marketing tools, and the engineering team has their own roadmap, and they don't want to be distracted by the marketing team. And so Analytics.js, engineers sort of recognized that Analytics.js was like the right abstraction. But even if they deployed Analytics.js, the open source version, the marketing team would still need to go ask the engineering team to deploy a new integration. And so the open source version for us doesn't fully solve the customer problem in the sense that it doesn't totally free up the marketing team to go do whatever they want. And so with the hosted version of Segment, the marketing team can just push buttons to turn on new tools. And so the, the interesting thing for us, I think, is that the open source library was really key for testing product market fit. It was really key for building some credibility that we had done a really good job building that library and that people appreciated sort of the actual engineering work underneath it, which helped build developer cred in sort of a developer-focused go-to-market. And it built like a channel of people discovering it on GitHub and then moving to the hosted version. So for us, open source solved a bunch of sort of like early on business and marketing problems actually, but didn't because it didn't actually fully solve the customer problem, didn't put any sort of future product roadmap or, or value at risk, which I think is is fairly rare. I think most of the time, most open source work, honestly, is just internal libraries that help build developer cred for, for engineering hiring. It helps give engineers sort of a preview of what it's like to work at the company, and I think that's important. Um, but for us, it was a little more strategic. Do you think Do you think open sourcing on, say, uh, GitHub is a brilliant way to really start the origins of a developer-centric community and a developer go-to-market? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, did, we also did a lot sort of, of other open source besides Analytics.js. We also had Nightmare and Myth and Metalsmith. Actually, all of those are more popular now uh, on GitHub than, uh, than Analytics.js is. Especially early on, you know, the four founders were working fairly closely with all the engineers in those communities to improve those those libraries. It was actually, it was a major source of, of engineering hiring for us early on because it's like, a, it's a broad community of people who like cared about the same sorts of problems and worked in similar ways. We had already worked with them online. We'd seen their code, etc. So it's, it's a big investment, but it was a it was an important channel for us early on in, in both hiring and I think building some cred in the ecosystem. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire round now. We call it the 60 second Sasta. So it's a statement and uh, 60 seconds to answer. How does that sound? Sounds great. So let's do starting with your biggest takeaway from the YC experience. 
I think it would be launch earlier. We failed at launching for like one and a half years. Like we just never launched anything until we launched Analytics JS. And in retrospect, you just do it, get it over with. What's been the biggest challenge to you building out the team at Segment? Uh, the biggest problem for, I'd say one of the biggest challenges is testing culture fit, especially as a company scales past like 20 or 30 people. Culture fit becomes just incredibly, incredibly important, but it's super not obvious how you test for that. Like how do you make sure that people have the same values as you? We've tried a lot of different things and I think they work to varying degrees, but it's it's uh, not obvious how to test culture fit while simultaneously not being biased. We're going to so, come, we're gonna come back to that. That's too tempting not to come back to you. And then let's do f- final quick fire is the favorite SaaS resource or reading material. Actually, Tom Tungus's blog is really good. I don't know if you follow his stuff. I do. It's kind of the most data heavy newsletter I've found in SaaS and love it. I had him on the show <laughs> before too. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I'm a massive fantastic. fanboy. Have you read his book? Uh, I have not yet. Well, the book is also brilliant. Um, but, but yes, no, but I do want to go back and we're not on the quick fire. I'm too tempted, though, not to ask about the kind of iterating on on culture fit and knowing whether it truly is a fit. What have you tried? Uh, what's worked uh, and what hasn't from from your experimentation? When we were say like zero or four people to maybe thirty or forty people, uh, our system was we just took people out for dinner at the end of the sort of interview interview loop, and we would just see like, do we want to hang out with this person? We would sort of yeah, basically just try to figure out like, is this the sort of person that that we really want to spend time with? And I think that's been recommended in a lot of different places. It has it has a couple of problems. One, we would send a good number of people to those dinners. And so as you start to scale hiring, it ends up being constantly people just have too many dinners, basically. <laughs> and so you just can't can't keep doing that. Uh, the other one is it introduces quite actually quite a bit of bias into the sort of culture fit test beyond the values, right? It tests you end up testing whether or not people just like the person, uh, which is not is not great from like a diversity hiring perspective. Generally speaking, it leaves a lot of sloppiness there. So we've now moved to we've done two things. One is actually solidify what uh, what our values are. So we have those you know four core values, we run those down and make sure that those are just constantly reinforced. Uh, and then we try to have, we have like a one-on-one culture fit test now, which is like go get a coffee or whatever during the day when people are here interviewing. Uh, and we try to ask questions and leading people through, uh, guiding them through a set of questions that we actually try to test for whether they agree with those values as opposed to whether we like hanging out with them. Obviously, if someone is a jerk, that we're not gonna we're not gonna hire them. But trying to test more explicitly for alignment on values than the sort of social fit. Absolutely. Do you make the values that you've mentioned there, the core values? Uh, do you make them publicly? Known? because it can often be quite a uh, difficult thing to know because then otherwise people can know that you look for X, X and X and I can be far more <laughs> humble and far more transparent and open and you know in our interview and then hopefully you'll love me when actually I'm a, I'm a jerk. Right. Uh, we, we haven't published them to date yet. We actually are planning on publishing them under the theory that if we do publish them, then people who agree with those will be more attracted and people who disagree with them will actually just be less attracted. So sort of moving the selection bias uh, there upstream. It's, a, it's an interesting impact, right? If someone really wants to join the company for some other reason, even if they don't naturally fit into the culture. Yeah, I, I do. I do want to discuss uh, a personal passion point of mine, though, and that's pricing. Uh, I know you had a successful recent pricing change. So mm-hmm. t- talk to me about that, the effect of it, and, and what you really kind of gained as a company from seeing the the transition with the pricing. 
Yeah, so the the transition that we had in pricing was from billing by API calls, which is basically how many pieces of data are people sending to Segment, and we switched to a model where we're billing by monthly tracked user. Uh, sorry, this is the number of customers that our customers have. So like Crate and Barrel is a customer, we bill by how many customers they're tracking through Segment. The key there is that the model basically shifted from being cost basis, how much are you costing us because you're sending data through us and it costs us money per data point, to a model that's more value-based, which is, hey, we help you grow your customer base, and and the more we grow your customer base, the more we're going to charge. So the alignment there switched from cost alignment on our side to value alignment on the customer side. And I think the sort of shift in metric to from cost to value, I think, is probably the, the most important thing. And, and I think what made the pricing change a success. Uh, I mean, the results have been like a really substantial increase in, in revenue growth and leads and everything, like really positive across the board. And uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it has almost everything to do with just alignment with your customers. Would you say then that it's right for the kind of common assumption that goes around SaaS communities and circles nowadays uh, that SaaS founders usually uh, undersell themselves and their products and they should always sell much higher? Do you think that's a fair assumption? Uh, I think that's a fair assumption. I don't think that was what we were fixing in this most recent pricing change. I'd say earlier on, we encountered that problem more. The most recent change was sort of structural alignment. Earlier on, we had to deal with just like our sort of naive bet around pricing. Uh, when we first launched, we were free and we're like, oh man, no one's ever going to pay for this thing. And then eventually we got some people paying like $20 a month. And then at some point we got someone paying $2,000 a month. And then we had a sales advisor who was like, you need to go into the next meeting and ask for a $120,000 annual contract. It's like $10,000 a month. And I was like, you're crazy. It's like, just do it. So I did. And we didn't close that deal. But three months later, we closed the deal at that price point. Okay. Were you, ner- and, were you nervous about doing it? Yeah, of course. Super nervous. And it was super obvious to the other people in the room, right? So, <laughs> it's like so, terrible. So, so what advice would you give then to founders who are nervous about upping the prices kind of significantly? Is there any kind of wise words you give having done it and entered the room with that nervous caution? One negotiation, I think it was our second paying customer. I quoted them 120K and and they sort of laughed and, you know, I blushed or whatever. It was a total disaster. But we still closed the deal. It ended up being like 18K or something, right? So it was like a, it was a pretty <laughs> like a brutal negotiation. But, you know, at the end of the day, we still closed the deal and it was still at like a reasonable price point. But then over time, we got more confident in asking for higher prices. People were willing to pay more. So would you uh, say go in with confidence and kind of sturdiness? For sure. Yeah. 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 Once, once we figured out how to ask for higher price points with confidence, we got it. You said there about the movement upstream from 20 to 2,000 to 120,000 per year um, the contract. I'm intrigued how you managed to support such a diverse array of customers, all from mm. one platform. D- does this go contra the traditional business school thesis of a very defined customer segment? Yeah, this is actually something that we talk about a fair amount. The, the way that I've framed it now is, I think, supporting a diverse group of customers has more perspective on what are, are their needs different, right? Like, does a media company need something substantially different from an e-commerce company? Do they need something substantially different from a B2B company. And I think it turns out that for at least the problem that we solve, everyone pretty much has the same problem here. And there's like subtle variations on that. But a astonishingly broad variety of customers have the problem uh, that we're trying to solve. And so it ends up being actually like less of a problem than you'd suspect. Uh, like they all need to get customer data 
it from their website and mobile app and they all need to get it through to a bunch of different marketing tools. And there's like some variations in which tools they need to get it through to. Yeah. I think I think it has more to do with diversity of needs. Like the question is, are you trying to service a bunch of different needs or are you trying to service a broad group of people by some definition, but they all have the same need? And then kind of uh, putting on the VC lingo, at what stage could you kind of expand in this town to, to be the uh, to be everyone who needs it? Because right? I guess in the beginning, you do have to go for the very focused customer segment just to get the initial traction. Yeah, so I'd say the the area that we focused was not necessarily on company vertical. The area that we focused on was marketing to developers. So we, we sold sort of universally across verticals, but always to uh, engineers and developers and people in the technical org. And so we were very focused from that perspective in a market or in a sort of target audience there that no one else in that market was focused on. Um, they were all building tools for the marketing org. At what time then did you expand? Uh, so actually, I'd say we still haven't really expanded from that core audience. Um, maybe we've expanded a little bit to include like product people and analysts, but that's still in sort of the technical product engineering org. Uh, we haven't expanded to marketing. We haven't expanded to sales. We haven't expanded to support. We haven't really expanded to like executive top-down sales process. Like we, we are still in that core. Actually, I don't know the answer to when you expand your core audience. Uh, that seems like a super hard question. And I, I think we traditionally have been mostly inbound. So it's not like we're doing outbound where we go and target like a bunch of specific roles and things like that. Basically, all of our like 99 0.9% of our customers come in just sort of off the street and show up at the website. Peter, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. It really has. Uh, I heard so much about you and Segment uh, from, from some of the guys at Excel. Uh, so it was so fantastic to have you on and hear your journey. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Again, a huge thanks to Peter for giving up his time today to appear on the show, and it was so fantastic to hear about his incredible journey with Segment. Also, I have to give a huge hand to Grant at Replicated for the intro to Peter, without which the show today would not have been possible. As always, you can follow Jason on Twitter at JasonLK, or you can follow me on Snapchat at HStebbings. And if you'd like to see me and Jason in person, then all you have to do is head over to Sasta.com, and when you're purchasing your tickets for Sasta Annual 2017, enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, and the kind bank of Mr. Jason Lampkin will give you free mojitos and 20% off your ticket price. I'm not sure which is more tempting for you. I certainly know which one will close the deal for me. But as always, we so appreciate the support. You can always email me on harry at the 20minutevc.com. I always so love to hear your thoughts, and I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode with Steve Garrity at Hearsay.